The Japanese General Yamashita was tried for war crimes, found guilty, and executed. Or was he judicially assassinated? Tomoyuki Yamashita was an outstanding soldier. He was a consummate strategist, and as such did not always see eye to eye with his political masters. In 1940, he was sent by General Tojo, the Minister of War, on a tour of the Axis powers in Europe, and when he returned he advised strongly that Japanese military capability was severely lacking, both in hardware and procedures. He recommended a thorough overhaul of the Japanese war machine, and that Japan should avoid entering a war until that had been done. This was not a welcome message to those who were actively considering an extension to their territorial acquisitions. Even as the raid on Pearl Harbor was taking place, Yamashita was preparing his assault on the Malay Peninsula. Within days he had landed in Malaya and took every opportunity to push his forces southwards until they threatened Singapore itself. The city was defended by a 100,000 British, Australian and Indian troops under the command of General Arthur Percival. On the 15th of February 1942, and with only 30,000 men available to him, Yamashita panicked Percival into surrendering. This was described by Churchill as the worst disaster and the largest capitulation in British history. Although his great victory was welcomed by most at home, he was seen by some as a threat, and for the next couple of years he was given only minor roles. But by 1944 the war was going very badly for Japan, and the Philippines were coming under threat from the Americans, who wished to regain their former colony. On the 9th of October, command of Japan's 14th Army in the Philippines was given to Yamashita. Within a few days of his arrival in the country, and with a mountain of work to do to acquaint himself with his new command, he was faced with an American landing at Leyte. So unfamiliar were his staff with his new area that a senior general assisting him is reported to have said, Where is Leyte? It was not a good omen. The Americans were well equipped and held air superiority, whereas the Japanese forces were poorly trained, poorly equipped, short of food and low on morale. From the moment the first American boot hit the sand, for the Japanese it was going to be a continuous withdrawal. The Americans had a stranglehold on the islands. With air superiority they could strafe and bomb pretty much at will. Their submarines made any journey for a Japanese ship perilous, and many thousands of men and tons of equipment, food and fuel were sunk by American torpedoes, making inter-island movement by ship for the Japanese almost impossible. The Americans quickly claimed control of all flat ground and forced the Japanese into the hills, where the terrain favoured defence. Yamashita managed the withdrawal well, and it was later said to be the most effective withdrawal in history. So great was the American pressure on Yamashita that every month or so he found that he had to move his headquarters higher into the mountains, and at times American air power meant that he could not leave those headquarters by daylight. Communications with his troops steadily deteriorated until they failed totally, and he became a commander in name only. The matter came to an end with the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Emperor's acceptance of defeat. Yamashita came down from the hills on the 3rd of September 
and surrendered in the presence of General Jonathan Wainwright of the United States and his former vanquished adversary, General Percival. Twenty-four days later, he was charged with war crimes. During those twenty-four days, he was questioned by his captors, and he made formal statements, but without being told by his captors that he was under no obligation to do so. Under American military law, such statements were inadmissible as evidence, but this was not to be seen by the court as a reason for not accepting them. In the event, they were merely to reinforce the position which he maintained throughout his trial. The charge against him was that between the 9th of October 1944 and the 2nd of September 1945, in the Philippine Islands, while commander of armed forces of Japan at war with the United States of America and its allies, he unlawfully disregarded and failed to discharge his duty as commander to control the operations of the members of his command, permitting them to commit brutal atrocities and other high crimes against the people of the United States and of its allies and dependencies, particularly the Philippines, and thereby violated the laws of war. No other information was supplied. An accused is entitled in most courts to a specification of the charges, what he is alleged to have done or not done, when and where. The Supreme Court of the United States was later to say that this charge was one of vagueness if not vacuity. The maximum sentence was death. Six officers were selected to defend him, being ordered to do so because defending a Japanese war criminal, as he was seen to be, was not likely to increase their popularity when they returned to civilian life and might be seeking election as judges or district attorneys in their native America. Fortunately, the men selected were professional and competent. On their insistence, the prosecution, which had been working on the case for months, supplied a bill of particulars in which were given details of 64 incidents of rape, murder and theft, which they intended to refer to in court. The defence then needed to investigate each of these incidents if they were to offer an effective defence. General MacArthur had indicated that the trial was to be undertaken with urgency. The reasons for this decision are unknown, but it has been suggested you must decide whether ungenerously that he wished to maintain his standing with the Filipinos to whom he had given his word that speedy retribution would be delivered to those who had visited upon them such terrible suffering during the Japanese occupation. However, in September 1945 the war was over and there was no discernible reason why whatever time needed by a judicial process should not have been granted. But that was not to be. Generals are soldiers, and soldiers obey orders. A suggestion from a superior officer carries the force of an order, especially when coming from one who can change your career. The officers forming the tribunal therefore set a trial date of Monday the 29th of October, giving the defence some two weeks to prepare its case. On the evening of Friday the 26th of October, three days before the trial was due to open, the prosecution served on the defence a bill of particulars which gave details of a further 59 incidents of alleged war crimes which the prosecution would raise in court. Without additional time to prepare, the defence was in an impossible position. The tribunal was composed of five army officers, three major generals and two brigadier generals. They were not well selected. 
None had experience of command in the field, and none had any legal knowledge. This deprived them of the understanding that was essential if they were to make balanced judgments about actions which soldiers had taken in battlefield conditions, and of which they knew nothing. Their lack of legal knowledge was particularly disturbing. Some exchanges between members on the panel and council lead one to suspect that at least one member of the panel believed that the responsibility for deciding whether evidence was reliable lay with the prosecution, when it was in fact a primary duty of the judges. And the ease with which they admitted hearsay evidence, in at least one case double hearsay evidence based on conjecture, is deeply concerning. At the opening of the trial, the defence asked for an adjournment in order that the recently received additional allegations could be evaluated. It modestly asked for two weeks. The panel initially agreed that an adjournment would be made later in the trial. During the period from the 8th to the 12th of November 1945, a radiogram, that is a message sent by radio, arrived from MacArthur's headquarters in Tokyo, stating that he could see no need for such an adjournment. It is unknown how a commander could form a valid view on legal proceedings taking place 1,800 miles away. Nevertheless, the panel of judges immediately ruled that any adjournment would be only for the most urgent and unavoidable reasons. They also ruled, in an attempt to speed up the trial, that thenceforth they would accept affidavits even when they were not supported by oral evidence, thereby reversing a previous ruling. The requested adjournment was never in fact granted, and this clearly placed the defence at a grave disadvantage. A member of the Supreme Court of the United States was not without a view on the matter. Mr Justice Rutledge said that it deprived the proceedings of any semblance of a trial as we know that institution. As proceedings developed, it rapidly became evident that many war crimes had been committed. Rapes, murders, thefts, looting and pillage had all occurred over a wide area over many months. Incident after incident was described to the court in heart-rending detail. No one could have failed to have the greatest pity for the victims and, as a corollary, the greatest anger towards the perpetrators. Nevertheless, it was striking how little detail was given about any connection between these crimes and Yamashita. For days his name would not even be mentioned as the victims serially recounted their harrowing experiences. It is true that throughout much of that time Yamashita had been in command, but not all. Many of the crimes cited had been committed before he arrived in the Philippines, and it is impossible to conceive of any relevance that such crimes might have had to the charges facing him. General Yamashita denied all knowledge of any war crimes. One of the charges against him related to the massacre of civilians in the capital, Manila, during its liberation. Yamashita argued that he had given orders that all Japanese forces were to be withdrawn from the city, and that these orders had been disobeyed by Admiral Iwabushi, whose troops had committed the atrocities. The prosecution could not disprove his claims. It did not seek to prove that he had ordered his troops to commit war crimes, and it could not show that he knew that his troops had committed, or were committing, such crimes, and that he had failed to act to stop them, or to punish those guilty. What the prosecution did claim was that the crimes were committed in a number of different areas and over an extended period, and that this showed that there was a pattern and that therefore Yamashita either must have known, or if he did not know, that he should have known about them 
and because he knew, or should have known, he was responsible for them because he had taken no or inadequate steps to prevent them. The men were his, and he was responsible for them and their actions. Major Kerr of the prosecution asked him, You admit, do you, that you failed to control your troops in the Philippines? Yes or no? If Yamashita had said yes, then he would admit to being guilty as charged. If he said no, then he was responsible of a dereliction of duty, and also guilty. Major Kerr had asked for an answer of black or white, when the correct answer was grey. A soldier who commits murder is controlled by his superior officer, but only in the sense that the soldier's general actions should be as the officer orders. The officer has no desire or intention that the soldier should commit rape or murder. When the judges retired to decide their verdict, they had before them 4,000 pages of record for their review, and 423 exhibits to consider, but this did not prevent them undertaking to return to court to give their judgment within 46 hours of the court rising. The date of the announcement of that verdict was the 7th of December 1945, four years to the day after Pearl Harbor. Sensitivity to Japanese feelings was not high amongst their priorities. When the judges had disappeared to deliberate, one newspaperman asked twelve of his colleagues, who had been present throughout the trial, to vote anonymously whether they would find the defendant guilty or not guilty. Their decision was not guilty by twelve to none. The five generals decided otherwise. By a majority of greater than two-thirds on a secret ballot, they found the defendant guilty and sentenced him to death. Their finding was that the prosecution presented evidence to show that the crimes were so extensive and widespread, both as to time and area, that they must either have been willfully permitted by the accused or secretly ordered by the accused. Captured orders issued by subordinate officers of the accused were presented as proof that they, at least, ordered certain acts leading directly to extermination of civilians under the guise of eliminating the activities of guerrillas hostile to Japan. With respect to civilian internees and prisoners of war, the proof offered to the Commission alleged criminal neglect, especially with respect to food and medical supplies, as well as complete failure by the higher echelons of command to detect and prevent cruel and inhuman treatment accorded by local commanders and guard. The Commission considered evidence that the provisions of the Geneva Convention received scant compliance or attention, and that the International Red Cross was unable to render any sustained help. The cruelties and arrogance of the Japanese military police, prison camp guards and officials with like action by local subordinate commanders were presented at length by the prosecution. Clearly crimes were committed. That was not the question the court was being asked to determine. What it was asked to determine was who had committed them. The court's findings could be restated as follows. We have heard evidence that war crimes were committed over a large area by troops under the command of the accused. We are therefore satisfied, beyond all reasonable doubt, that he ordered them to commit those crimes. No orders have been found, and so these orders must have been given in secret. It is not reasonable to believe that these secret orders were given by anyone other than the accused. No evidence has been produced to us that he ordered the crimes, and he has consistently denied all knowledge of them, we therefore know that he is lying. Not only had no one shown 
any evidence that he had willfully permitted the crimes, but the only evidence before the court was the opposite, that he had not done so. Indeed, more than that, the evidence was that he had given orders that they should not take place. The captured orders issued by subordinate officers seem as though they may constitute evidence against the subordinate officers. But in the trial of an officer who is not a subordinate officer and did not issue them, and indeed who it was not even claimed had issued them, they are irrelevant. The cruelties and arrogance of the Japanese military police, prison camp guards and officials is a criticism, and perhaps a severe criticism, of the Japanese military police, prison camp guards and officials, not of another person not included in that list. The verdict had to be reviewed by the Judge Advocate General's Corps in the Philippines and then by MacArthur's Judge Advocate General's Corps in Tokyo. The first review was to be completed within 48 hours of the end of the trial and the second only a little thereafter. The world was at peace, there was no urgency other than that demanded by MacArthur. You will not by now be surprised to learn that both Judge Advocate General's departments approved the verdict and sentence. The case was referred to the Supreme Court of the United States on a technicality which could have saved Yamashita, but it made no finding to overturn the verdict which stood. A summary of the decision was sent to MacArthur in Tokyo by radio, and a copy of the full judgment was dispatched by letter, with the letter expected to take a few days to arrive at its destination. Within hours of receiving the radio message, General MacArthur had given orders for the sentence to be carried out. He did not think it worth waiting the few days it would have taken for the reasoned opinion behind the Supreme Court verdict to reach him, so that he could assess whether clemency was in order. Accordingly, the doctrine of command responsibility was advanced. Under this extreme version of the principle, for a commander in the field to be guilty of a war crime, it is not necessary that he give orders for actions constituting a crime to be committed or even that he be aware that such actions have occurred. All that is necessary is that a war crime be committed by personnel under his command. Everyone can easily agree that if crimes are in fact committed, then it is necessarily the case that the commander has not taken sufficient action to prevent them. This is now known as the Yamashita Principle. The defence submitted this is the first time in modern history that a commanding officer has been held criminally liable for acts committed by his troops. It is the first time in modern history that any man has been held criminally liable for acts which, according to the conclusion of the Commission, therefore by its findings created a new crime. The accused could not have known, nor could a sage have predicted, that at some time in the future a military commission would decree acts which involved no criminal intent or gross negligence to be a crime, and it is unjust, therefore, that the punishment for that crime should be the supreme penalty. In its opinion, the tribunal stated, It is absurd, however, to consider a commander a murderer or rapist because one of his soldiers commits a murder or rape. Nonetheless, where murder and rape and vicious revengeful actions are widespread offences, and there is no effective attempt by a commander to discover and control the criminal acts, such a commander may be held responsible, even criminally liable, for the lawless acts of his troops. That opinion appears flawed and raises some difficult questions. 
If no attempt is made by a commander to discover criminal acts with a view to controlling them, then he remains ignorant of those criminal acts. If he is ignorant of criminal acts, why should he attempt to discover what he does not know, and what he may well believe does not exist? The tribunal's opinion, as stated, makes no allowance for the difficulties which might face a commander. The tribunal requires that a commander make an effective effective attempt to discover and control the criminal acts, that is, attempts which is successful. If he makes an attempt and it is not successful, it cannot be called an effective attempt, and he is therefore in breach of his obligation as defined by the tribunal. There are many reasons why his attempt might be unsuccessful. He might have no communications, and might even be prevented from leaving his headquarters by enemy action, as was the case with General Yamashita. Holding such a commander responsible, and even criminally liable, seems grossly unfair. There is also, of course, the matter of culpable ignorance. Ask no questions and you will learn nothing. But what, then, is the minimum effort a commander needs to exert to discover war crimes if he is to avoid the charges made against him? How is that effort to be balanced against the effort required to perform the many other pressing duties if he is to direct his army? How was he to know, before the trial, what that minimum was? Where, in the spectrum from one murder for which the panel would not have held Yamashita guilty, to the large number of murders which took place and for which the panel did hold him guilty, did the dividing line lie? Ten? A hundred? A thousand? It is a principle of law that the law should be clear before the event. If there is a signpost limiting the speed to thirty miles an hour, then you know before entering the restricted zone that driving at 31 miles per hour is an offence and that driving at 29 miles per hour is not. In this instance, no such signpost existed. It was a matter to be decided by the judges at their discretion after the event. Who is the commander? If a war crime is committed by a private soldier, then it is necessarily the case that the crime was not prevented by the soldier's superiors, that is, everyone in the chain of command above him, from Lance Corporal to Field Marshal. There has never been a suggestion that all these should be charged with war crimes, even though the Yamashita principle suggests that each and every one of them should be. When the trial was reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court, not all the justices were content with the tribunal's decision. Mr. Justice William Murphy, an associate justice of the court, said that Read against the background of military events in the Philippines subsequent to the 9th of October 1944, these charges amount to this. We, the victorious American forces, charge you with the crime of inefficiency in controlling your troops. We will judge the discharge of your duties by the disorganization which we ourselves created in large part. To use the very inefficiency and disorganization created by the victorious forces as the primary basis for condemning officers of the defeated army, bears no resemblance to justice or military reality. Similarly, he raised the question of the applicability of the Fifth Amendment to the American Constitution. This amendment grants rights to a fair trial to anyone who is accused by the US government or one of its agencies. It does not specify exceptions. Mr Justice Murphy opined that the accused had been rushed to trial under an improper charge given insufficient time to prepare an adequate defence, deprived of the benefits of some of the most elementary rules of evidence, and summarily sentenced to be hanged. 
The public's reaction to the case was highly negative. The American magazine Time described the trial as a damning report on American justice, and Newsweek said, in the opinion of probably every correspondent covering the trial, the military commission came into the courtroom on the first day with the decision already in its collective pocket. This negative opinion was shared by many professional lawyers, with the Yale Law Review referring to a debasement of American law. The American army took steps to ensure that criticism of the trial, openly available in America, was banned from publication in Japan. It described one such book as being an attack upon our system of jurisprudence. Indeed, it might be said upon our American system. Yamashita was hanged on the 23rd of February 1946. The time from trial through appeal to execution was 151 days. So, was General Yamashita properly executed for war crimes? Or was he judicially assassinated? You must form your own view. Thank you.